When I found myself out on the streets um, and my son was with me and we were living in and out of hotels, you know, he, he began to tear up and he looked at me and he said, what happened? You know, what happened to you? I think the lowest point is when we both literally slept in a shed on the side of the road. You know, we had nowhere to go. We had no money. We found ourselves sleeping in one of them sheds. But unfortunately, at that point, I've done so many things and um, found myself behind bars. So listen, let me tell you what happened, right? They took me to the toughest prison, and it was a maximum security prison in Tabor City. This building was something you would see like Alcatraz on, on TV. And I looked at the officer. I said, hey, man, I, I think you got me at the wrong place. Look at that file. Why am I coming here? They put in a 10 by 8 cell for 24 hours a day. All right, you cannot get out. You're, you're stuck confined behind a 10, 10 by 8 cell, completely locked, a tiny window. They let you out every three days for a shower for 15 minutes. They put you in shackles and chains, and they shackle you in the shower for 15 minutes. I was angry. I'm not going to lie to you. I was frustrated, angry, asking the guards why I'm here. I didn't do nothing wrong. And they're like, well, you're in administrative segregation, which means you didn't do nothing wrong, but you're in here because we have no beds for you. You know what I mean? You're not in dis disciplinary segregation. You're in administrative segregation. Well, all that gave me the option was they gave me a Walkman that I could listen to instead of, uh, you know, not having a Walkman. <laughs> But I will say one thing about Shady Grove that stuck with me and made me who I am today. You are a loving church because I'll never forget walking in them doors, broken and beat up and the pain I was in. And everybody encouraged and lifted me up and hugged me and loved me. That's what helped me get to where I am today. Even when I left the church because I went back out there, when I came back, everybody embraced me with open arms. And that, to me, I will never forget. Hello and welcome to Shady Grove Radio. I'm Dan Loggins. This is the day the Lord has made, and this is episode number 67 of Shady Grove Radio. Today we're talking with someone in our Shady Grove Wesleyan Church family, Kevin Ryback. So many of you know Kevin, and many of you know his story from success to ultra success, but then he had a train wreck somewhere along the way, and eventually a surrender to God that resulted in a ministry that he's very passionate about. So sit back and enjoy this conversation with our friend and brother Kevin Ryback. Mr. Loggins. What's up, Kevin? How you doing, sir? I'm well. How are you? Oh, I'm wonderful. Good. Can't complain at all. So good to talk to you, man. We miss you at Shady Grove. Tell us your story. Well, I mean, uh, I'm, I'm a native of Buffalo, New York. Um, born and raised uh, from a, uh, say, middle-class family. I had a good, loving family. But growing up, you know, there was a lot of alcohol involved and a lot of drugs involved within the family. Not necessarily the immediate family, but my dad um, was a bad alcoholic. At a young age... You know, for whatever reason, um, it started with an experiment. You know, when I picked up that first drink, something happened to where I just started getting this phenomenon of craving that I wanted to continue to pick up and drink. And the, the feeling that I got was something that's unexplainable. My brother, you know, after I look back on everything, you know, my brother was, a, you know, almost a professional athlete. I kind of lived in the shadows of him for, for a long time growing up. Um, you know, my family, um, 
even me as an athlete, you know, I, I kind of had to live up to his expectations. You know, I was a really good athlete. And unfortunately, when I did well, the paper would read, you know, Ryback's little brother. You know, anytime I went to a family event, they would ask always about, you know, how's my brother doing versus how I'm doing. So I, I think I felt kind of misplaced at a young age. And uh, so when I had picked up that first drink, I felt like, you know, wow. Now, this is me. But I always aspired at a young age to do well and to find myself. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I got caught up very early on in the secular worldly views and, uh, you know, the, the success of trying to, to make a lot of money and do well in business is what um, what I strive to do. You know what I mean? And uh, at a very young age, I was able to open up a business and. Uh, you know, chase money and uh, never, never really instilled any, any biblical or, or any sort of principles for my family to live by other than chasing money and having the worldly things in life and all the material things. But you had, a, and, you, you evidently had a knack for business. Yeah. God, God had blessed me. I mean, I, I was very uh, motivated, number one, and uh, I had a knack for, for sales and, and just had good people skills Yeah, and, and did a lot of training at a very young age. You know what I mean? I was trained, went to a lot of seminars. So, you know, the skill set that I have was wasn't a bad skill set. It was a good skill set. But, you know, as I further progressed in business, you know, my my needs and wants became different. You know, I started going after the money instead of, you know, taking care of my family. So, yeah, as far as the business side goes, I was uh, I was good at what I did. Um, but once I got that money in my hands and I started getting successful, I wanted more and more. And the more I chased after it, I still had a void inside my heart. You know, I mean, everything I did wasn't enough. Yeah, I was in the mortgage business. Um, you know, uh, when I moved to North Carolina, um, my brother and I, he actually worked for a mortgage company and uh, he wanted me to come work with him. And he knew the talents I had. And, you know, within the first six months, I was the top producer of the company. And I approached him and said, hey, look, we need to go out on our own and do this. <laughs> and uh, so I convinced him. So we went ahead and opened up our uh, first office in Kernersville. That was our corporate office. And, um, you know, within two years, we expanded it to five offices in North Carolina. And we had nearly 70 employees. And we were like the fifth largest mortgage company in North Carolina for about 15 years running. And um, so, you know, learned a lot about business, built up a lot of good relationships, a lot of networking. I was, uh, you know, considered somebody that was, uh, um, you know, in the town. I, I did a lot for the, the town of Kernersville, and I was active in the community. You yeah. know what I mean? So God was never a part of my picture. I was leaving my family out, but then my alcohol and drug use started to progress throughout that time. Um, I think, you know, I was such a workaholic that, you know, I needed something to aid me to keep me up and keep me moving to continue chasing that dream of having big things and money and, and cars and, and a big house and everything like that. But the ones that were suffering through the whole time was my family, which is my wife, my ex-wife and my child. Um, you know, I thought my my perception was that I could shower them with money and that's what they wanted. But really, they wanted a husband. And, and my son wanted a father, you know what I mean? And that's something that started to grow apart as my addiction grew and as my wants and needs got higher. 
far as uh, my addiction goes, I mean, it started as an experiment, you know, when I was at a young age. It grew to be fun for a long time. You know, I love the party, have fun, go out, entertain, network. Um, and then it became a dependency. And once that dependency point came, I had to get up and, and, and I was chasing that drug or that drink before I was chasing anything else. And once it became a dependency is when everything started crashing down. But on the spiritual side, through all them times, I mean, I had a big heart, Dan, at all times. But, you know, my heart was in the wrong place. I was helping the wrong people. I was feeding the addicts and the alcoholics instead of helping them because I couldn't help myself. Yeah. And I left my family behind and. You know, we see it every day that everybody's chasing and working 14 hours, 12 hours a day to build their careers. And that's what I was after. I wasn't building a relationship within my family or a relationship as a father. I mean, I was working long hours when I came home. I wasn't interested in doing anything with the family. I was just trying to shower them with money and thought that was what would keep them happy. But in the end, you know, it got to a point where money wasn't what they were looking for. You know, yeah. my son needed a father and my, my ex-wife needed a husband. Alcohol is where it started. And then uh, cocaine became a big part of my story. The cocaine use was to, to, to help me drink more. You know, I was sick of passing out and blacking out and doing things that I wasn't functionable and able to remember. So that cocaine gave me a crutch to continue drinking the way I wanted to drink. And that went on for a good 20 years of my life, you know, from the time I was 18 until, you know, 38 years old um, before I first went into treatment the first time. And that was an everyday use. And, and I bet you the expense was probably about a three to four thousand dollar habit a week. Well, when things started falling apart, you know, I was getting threatened by my ex-wife that she was going to leave. And, you know, my, my son was, was spinning out of control and falling into the same patterns that I was falling into. And he was an only child. So, you know, he he was more or less a mama's boy because dad was never there. But, you know, it got to a point where my wife started to threaten me. So, you know, the first time I went into treatment, I didn't do it for me. I did it for her and I did it for my family. Which, you know, down the line, I realized that the reason you go into treatment to fix yourself or to get better for anything, for that matter, is you got to do it for you and not for anybody else. You know, the first go around in treatment in 2013, you know, I did well for, you know, about a year and a half. That's when I was introduced to Shady Grove and I got saved. And, you know, my intentions and my heart was good, but I don't think I was ready to give that lifestyle up at that point. So from there, it, it led to... um you know, at that point, I began to lose things. You know, I started losing, you know, my, my assets and, and, and my money, which put me into a deeper state of depression and a deeper state of wanting to cover up them emotions, which led me to go back to drinking and drugging. Every time I went back out there, it got worse and worse. And it got to a point where, you know, my ex-wife had had enough. My child at that point, I was dragging out there with me. So now she's dealing with two of the same people and I was getting blamed for everything because he was seeing everything I did and fell into, you know, my footsteps. Rightfully so, in high insight, I can understand for, for catching the blame for all the things that I did that led to my son to doing what he did because I wasn't much of a father figure. I mean, there was there were several times where you know, my son at the time was, you know, made attempts to commit suicide. My ex-wife had overdosed on pills to 
and she wasn't a drug addict by no means, but these are the things that led my actions led into the, the results of the things that happened with them. And, uh, so eventually, you know, my, my ex-wife had enough and decided to leave. And, uh, at that point, you know, I was homeless living on the streets, bouncing from hotel to hotel, um, spiritually, mentally sick and just, uh, you know, causing chaos and trying to survive and doing things that otherwise a normal person wouldn't do. You know, when I found myself out on the streets and my son was with me and we were living in and out of hotels, you know, he sat down uh, in the car one day with me and he, he began to tear up and he looked at me and he said, what happened? You know, what happened to you? I, I, I didn't have a response because I didn't know what to say, you know, and I think the lowest point is when we both literally slept in a shed on the side of the road, you know, them places that sell sheds on the side of the road. Yeah. You know, we had nowhere to go. We had no money. And uh, we found ourselves sleeping in one of them sheds. And I, I realized at that point I was at the lowest point of my life. And, you know, I honestly didn't want to live. I mean, I had nothing to live for in my eyes at that point. That's when things at that point, I, I think I had a, a spiritual awakening to where it said, you know, I, I got to do something different. I got to do something different. But unfortunately, at that point, I've done so many things that caught up with me. And that's when I had got arrested, found myself behind bars. The, the charge I caught was a Class E felony. And it was, it was a pretty major charge. And I was looking at, you know, anywhere from four to seven years. Now, mind you, I've never had any felonies previously. And uh, it was a wake-up call. So I, I, I was in county, the, the Forsyth County Jail awaiting to to either do a plea bargain or go to trial and i sat in there for about seven months um and at that time while i was sitting in county you know i was i i think that's when i really started getting myself grounded into into god and realized that you know things need to change and i can't do it on my own and it was pretty much just me because during that point, um, my son had passed away from an overdose all within a few days. My son passed away while I was locked up in the county jail. And uh, my wife had divorced me at the time. So and it turned out to be my I think it was the my 19th anniversary wedding anniversary. Three days after my son's death, after his funeral is when I received the divorce paper. So here I was. I lost my son. I lost my pride, my dignity. Um, you know, I lost my, my ex-wife. I had no home. I had no money. I had to close on my back. At that point, you know, I had to look up and say, you know, God help me. I can't do this on my own. You know, I literally sat in that cell and said, either take my life or fix it. I need your help. And I think that's where things started to change at that point. You know, the attorney, after sitting in there for seven months, I had spoken to, uh, a, a hired attorney that I was going to hire. Um, they kept, they weren't coming off of that, uh, you know, four to seven year plea bargain. And I, I wasn't willing to accept that. I was still fighting it. Well, at that point to a paid attorney and he came and visited and told me that he feels confident he can get me uh, off on probation. 
his suggestion was for me to bail out. Now I had a $55,000 bond. So his suggestion was to, to bail out and go into a program. And uh, so I found myself, ended up bailing out, went into a so went to Sober Live in America, where I currently work. This is back in 2021. I went there for about six months and uh, come to find out, my attorney had told me, look, they're not coming off of this plea. Either you sign or go to trial. And if you go to trial, you end up doing 12 to 15 years. So he suggested to me to go ahead and sign. So at that point, I uh, I went to court and uh, I said, you know what, God, it's in your hands, whatever it is. If this is where you want me to go, this is what you want me to do. Then I'm going to do it. You know, my way ain't working. You know, I got to follow your path. So when I went, I was in front of the toughest judge in Forsyth County. And believe it or not, before I walked in, my attorney expressed to me that, hey, I just want to let you know that he may not accept this plea because, you know, he, he's just that whole past week, you know, that he was doing murder cases and putting people away for life. So he, he warned me that don't say anything when you walk in there and let's just pray that he accepts the plea. Well, when I walked in, surely enough, I was praying. But when I got in front of the judge, he looked at me and not only did he accept the plea, but he reduced it from you know, four to seven years down to 20 to 36 months. So I was sent to prison. I ended up doing the other 13 months in prison. That's when it really woke me up. And I said, God is good. You know what I mean? Yeah. Not that I didn't completely trust him before, but he showed me once I got away, once I got out of self and I allowed him to do his work, at that point, he opened the door to allow me to, to, to serve the time that I served. And I knew it was nothing but a God thing. So, uh, ironically, when I went in, it was it was the, the, the tail end of COVID. And, um, you know, the first 30 days I spent before I went into prison, I was in um, when, when everybody was confined for COVID. I was I was literally in my cell for 23 out of 24 hours a day, every day for 30 days. And that first 30 days, you know, I dug into the Bible. Um, I really started building my relationship with God. And um, he truly prepared me for my walk when I got to prison. You know what I mean? Because this was still in county. I was waiting to be transferred to prison. Uh, when I got to prison, um, you know, what I what I found and what I encountered um, was a whole bunch of broken, lost people. Wow. And um, as I as I looked around and, and seen the atmosphere I was in, I, I was astonished by how many people were broken and lost and, and, and just didn't feel loved. So I, I continued to dig in the Bible. And ironically, you know, I was made the chaplain of the actual prison. Um, and so uh, I had the opportunity to, to, to really look at how 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 terrible and how evil the world is. At that time, church wasn't coming in um, because of COVID. So everything was cut off, but we were trying to get the church back in. So I was a big part of getting the church back into the prisons where we can have sermons and we can bring everybody together. Um, you know, I, I, I did nothing but sit there and, and read the Bible and study and, and, and try to talk and communicate to others and show love. You see, Dan, for, for my whole life, I searched for a purpose, okay? And and I thought to be successful in life and, and my purpose was was to be this, this big businessman that made a whole bunch of money. 
And uh, that's all I ever chased. But when I was in prison, you know, I was trying to search for my purpose and I, I couldn't figure out what was my purpose. And as I was going through the Bible, you know, I read, uh, I think it was in Matthew, but it's also in Mark and, and it's also in Luke. But, um, you know, the, the attorney had asked uh, Jesus, he said, you know, what is, he tried to trick him and ask him, you know, what's the greatest commandment? And God came, or Jesus had responded, uh, you know, to, to love your God with all your soul and all your heart, but also to love your neighbor as you love yourself. So I kind of kind of looked at that and I said, wow, it clicked to me. And, and I realized that, you know what, all this big, you know, this this purpose I've been searching for my whole life is right here in front of me. All I got to do is love God with all my heart and all my soul and love my neighbor as I love myself. But, you know, the disconnect at that point was uh, I had to learn to love myself first. It's hard to love somebody else when you can't find a way to love yourself. So I had to work on me in order to love God and to put my trust and faith in God, because it's hard to love somebody if you don't trust or have faith in them. Right. Yeah. So it was hard for me to put my heart and soul into God when I wasn't at the point to trust to, to, to trust him or have faith in him at that point. But then when I looked around everybody and I started working on myself for a good month, 45 days, just constantly digging in the Bible and studying it, I began to learn to love myself and to forgive myself. You know, I lived in a lot of shame and guilt for years, and I couldn't get over that shame or guilt. You know, I didn't, I wasn't blaming nobody else. You know, all, all the word out there, you know, I'm the one who killed my son because of my actions and, you know, my ex-wife's family. And, you know, I was a people pleaser for years, Dan. And, you know, that's all I seek to do is please people. But I had to get to a point where, you know what? I started to free myself when I learned that it wasn't my business what people thought about me. And when I could have got to that point to where it wasn't my business what people said about me, that all that mattered was my relationship with God, that's when I started to grow. My mind wasn't filled with these thoughts about what people thought about me being in prison and what people thought about what I did and what happened to my son and what happened to my family and how I tore down everybody. Now, don't get me wrong. I have a lot of remorse. For, for what I did, you know, but I had to stop beating myself up. Either I could die or I could get up and allow God to give me the strength and the courage to move forward. So I began to seek around me by helping other people and seeing broken people that showed me that if I could just love these people, that's all they need. They want love. They've, they've, none of them have been loved. They've been so broken all their life. So by helping these people and loving on people and starting to walk, you know, I've, I've always had a good talk game my whole life, right? Well, you know, people are sick of hearing me talk. I had to start walking upright and walking in the light so I could show my action. People are attracted to people in the light. So these people on campus kept coming to me, you know, with their stories and the things that I heard were all brokenness and, and people just wanted to be loved. So my purpose in jail, you know, when I was locked up in prison was just to, to help people. And what I had learned by helping people, I was able to define and see different cultures, different backgrounds and understand that people come from different places and they're raised differently. Some were molested, some were beaten, some were thrown into foster homes at very young ages. So I started to seek to understand, you know, I was always the type that wanted to be understood my whole life. But at that point, I started to seek to understand other people and where they're coming from and empathetically listen 
And that's all these people want, you know. Nobody's ever taken the time out to listen or to love on them. And I started to plant seeds, you know, and I started seeing it. And, you know, I was part of building the church back up in prison. And by the time I left, there was, I don't know, a hundred, over a hundred people attending when we started off with two or three and we built our Bible study up to 50 people. You know what I mean? So what was God that moved in mighty ways. What was that like? I mean, I know you wanted to get out of there, but it right. sounds like you had a vibrant ministry. Uh, going there, what was that like to walk, to, to have to leave and leave that ministry behind? Well, so listen, you know, um, it's kind of strange because I also learned while I was in prison that it's not the circumstances in life that hurt you. It's how you respond to them. It's how you react to them. So when I was behind these walls and behind these fences that were lit up at night and you see nothing but the sparkle off of their bob wire, I didn't perceive it as being locked in prison. I perceived myself being at literally a Bible camp and literally a opportunity. I took the opportunity to study the word. And I swear in them 13 months, I probably gained enough knowledge than somebody that went to seminary school. That's how serious I took. And that's how much I studied. So, you know, I looked at it in my mind that, you know what, I'm on a, uh, uh, I live in a gated community with a store with four basketball courts and volleyball courts. Uh, you know what I mean? That's the perception I had. I had to take my mindset out of the fact that, because again, it's not the circumstance that, yep. that, that affects you. It's how you perceive it. Right. Yeah. Right. So, so I would always tell people, I mean, what more could you ask for? You're living for free. You got a store, you got a restaurant, you got four basketball courts, three volleyball courts. You got your own church. You got everything you need and it's free. And we got our own school on property, you know? So that's how I had to perceive things in order to get through what I was going through. Because if I sat there and told myself and allow the devil to attack me that, you know, you're confined, you're in prison with a bunch of murderers. And, you know, there was people in there for life. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, so, so God used me in mighty ways, you know, and, and, and to answer your question, it's kind of ironic. I had 32 days remaining, right? And I'll never forget this day. I sat in front of the church and, uh, you know, because I helped build it and I was the chaplain, I had, a, you know, about 20 minutes before the preacher would come, I'd do all the introductions and I would always, you know, preach on something for the day, you know, that Sunday, every Sunday. Well, this Sunday, you know, I looked at the, the, the crowd and I just told them, I said, you know, if God don't want to change your circumstance, we're all locked up behind these fences. If he don't want to change your circumstance, then he wants to change you. And I repeated it to him. If he won't change your circumstance, he wants to change you. And, you know, I, I, I thought about that in my own life. Well, ironically, that night at about 11 o'clock, they came to me and said, hey, you're being shipped out. Now, they tell you late at night because they don't want you to make plans. You know, people can escape and everything like that. If you let your outside people know, you know, they tell you after the phones have been shut down that, hey, you're getting a shipping bag, you're being shipped out. Well, I thought I was being shipped closer to home and my journey was done. I was broken, hurt that I was leaving the ministry and, and, and everything that I helped build there and what God used me to do. So I thought, okay, maybe they're taking me closer to home, Winston-Salem over on Cherry Street. It's a, you know, I was locked up in a minimum or a medium security prison. Maybe they're going to take me to a minimum security because it's my last 32 days. Well, come to find out, 
they took me to the toughest prison, and it was a maximum security prison in Tabor City. And I pulled up to this thing now. This building was something you would see like Alcatraz on, on TV. And I looked at the officer. I said, hey, man, I, I think you got me at the wrong place. Look at that file. And he's like, no, this is where you're going. I'm like, no, look at that file. <laughs> and I'm sitting here saying to myself, God, what are you doing? I've been following your path. I've been ministering. I've opened the church up. I've done everything you've asked me to do. Why am I coming here? Well, not only was I going to a maximum security prison, but the only cells that they had were in segregation. So they put me in segregation for 32 days. Now, so, so I, tell, I, tell me what ahead. segregation is. Okay, so segregation is you're locked in a 10 by 8 cell for 24 hours a day. All right, you cannot get out. You're, you're stuck confined behind a 10, 10 by 8 cell, completely locked, Wow. a tiny window. And the reason why I was put there is because all the, all the uh, prisons were overcrowded. And because I was getting time to go home, they shipped me out because they needed the bed over there where I was at. Um, so unfortunately I go into this segregation, segregation, I'm locked up 24 out of 24 hours a day. They let you out every three days for a shower for 15 minutes. They put you in shackles and chains and they shackle you in the shower for 15 minutes. <laughs> so, so you, yeah. you're on your way out of prison and they took you from what, a medium security place yep. to yep. medium security Max where you're outside, where you're outside. Now, mind you, because I was a chaplain, I had keys to all the gates other than the one in the parking lot, of course, but I had keys to all the gates to go in and out from the schools, the chapel, to go from one side of the uh, prison to the other side. And it was a prison camp. Okay. Yeah. You can go outside. It's more like a camp. If you think about the military, a camp that's surrounded, you know, by barbed wire. Right. So listen, let me tell you what happened. Right. So I told you the first 30 days I was in what they call segregation because of COVID. And that's where everybody was locked down 23 out of 24 days. So high insight, looking back on it, you know, the first 30 days that I was in segregation or in lockdown, God prepared me to go into prison. You know what I mean? He built that foundation. Now, the last 32 days I sat there and uh, I was angry. I'm not going to lie to you. I was frustrated, angry, asking the guards why I'm here. I didn't do nothing wrong. And they're like, well, you're in administrative segregation, which means you didn't do nothing wrong, but you're in here because we have no beds for you. You know what I mean? You're not in dis disciplinary segregation. You're in administrative segregation. Well, all of that gave me the option was they gave me a Walkman that I could listen to instead of, uh, you know, not having a Walkman. That yeah. was the only privilege. So, <laughs> but so the first day I was angry. I was writing my mom because I couldn't use the phone. You, you couldn't use the phone for 32 days. You couldn't go out. You couldn't do nothing. So, you know, I started reading the Bible, which I, you know, <laughs> been doing the whole time. And I was in Psalms and I was reading Psalms. I don't remember exactly what chapter or what verse, but, um, you know, David was in that cave by himself and uh, he was crying out to God. And I remember reading David saying, God, please examine my heart. You know what I mean? And that stuck with me. So I immediately started to cry and I hit the ground and and I asked God to examine my heart. What is it you want to do with me? I just preached, ironically, the night before. If you won't change my circumstance, you want to change me. What is it in me you want to change? And then are the questions I was asking God. 
And immediately it came over me that night. He said, you got things to deal with. I had resentments buried inside me on, you know, my ex-wife. You know, yeah, I did a lot of damage to her. I did a lot of damage to my son. But, you know, they've done things to hurt me, too. You know what I'm saying? And those things were buried inside of me. My brother, they he done things that hurt me. Not near as what I've done to them. But, you know, I still had resentments inside me that I had to deal with. So, you know, I took that 32 days to deal with them resentments, write letters to my son who was passed away. I wrote a letter to my ex-wife, wrote a letter to my brother, and I was able to free myself. God knew that if I didn't deal with these resentments that I had deep down inside of me because I was taking all the blame, he knew that I was going to probably end up going back out there because I didn't deal with everything I needed to deal with. So he prepared me for release. And, you know, when I walked out of there after 32 days, I was glowing. You know what I'm saying? I was absolutely glowing. I couldn't believe the journey that I just went on, you know? And, um, wow. When I, yeah, I mean, it was, uh, the experience that I have, I wouldn't change for anything because God put me through that because I needed it. He prepared me for what is to come. He prepared me for what I'm doing today. Tell me what you are doing today. This is how God works too, Dan. You know, when I was locked in prison in them last 32 days, I couldn't coordinate or make phone calls. But my my goal was to go back to sober living America, exactly where I came from when I came out of uh, county jail before I went into prison. You know, I liked the place. It was a good stepping stone for me. It was good, uh, good spot to get acclimated back into the community. Um, so that was my goal to go there. And uh, I wanted to go to the Charlotte location. Well, um, come to find out when the, my parole officer picked me up, there was no beds in Charlotte. They were taking me back to Greensboro. I didn't want to go back to Greensboro because them were my stomping grounds before I got locked up. So, but God had a different plan. I went with it. I had no choice and I just let him, <laughs> I wasn't going to argue about it. My way wasn't working. It's going to be his way this time. So, you know, within the first 30 days of being there, um, they offered me a position with the company. So, you know, ironically, I ended up in Charlotte where I wanted to go originally, but it didn't stop there. You know, I was in Charlotte for three months and they had uh, approached me and corporate called me and asked me if, uh, you know, we're trying to open up another location in Raleigh. We already have one there. If I'd be interested in going to open up the new location and, I wasn't going to argue with God. I prayed about it. That's where he wanted me to go. So, you know, I've been uprooted and moved three times since I've been out. But, you know, when I look at it, it's like God's allowing me to touch other people everywhere I go. And um, I'm kind of leaving a little mark on each city I go into. You know, the main thing for me today is I, I try to tell everybody, man, that, that God gives us today. You know, we can't look at yesterday and we can't look at tomorrow. And there's three principles I try to live by today. And the three things I do when I wake up every day is, you know, I, I live by these three principles. I have to admit, accept, and surrender every day. And, you know, I have to admit my mistakes. I have to admit my past. I got I have to admit my circumstances. Um, I got to admit my problems, you know. I got to admit that I'm an alcoholic and an addict and I can never pick up a drink again. But then I got to accept. Number one thing I got to accept is responsibility for my actions today. You know, there's no more pointing fingers at anybody else. What I do is because of what I do, not what somebody causes me to do. 
And then finally, I got to surrender. I got to surrender my will every day to God because I can't do it on my own. He's the one who gives me the strength, the power to get through what I got to go through today. And that's all I do is live one day at a time. I got that 24 hours ahead. I ask for that guidance in the morning. And then during the day, it's important. We all, whoever's listening to this, we need to pause in the middle of the day. We got to pause because we live in a busy society. Our world is crazy. And, you know, we're always built in that hustle bustle. We need to take a step back, meditate, pray, get, get away from the busyness. You know, whether it be you're on break at work and you're on lunch, go sit in your car and, and get some peace. And, and reevaluate what's going on throughout the day. You got to pause. And then at night, when I lay my head down, I sit there and I reflect on what I did that day and what could I do better? Did I hurt anybody? Did I harm anybody? What good things did I do today that I can continue to do tomorrow? And, and the biggest thing that I learned was, you know, that last thought that you have when you go to sleep is the first thought you're going to have when you wake up. The Bible tells us, don't let the sun go down if you're angry, right? So you have to be in, a, in, in, in gratitude when you lay your head down. You got to praise and thank God. So I'm always in gratitude. So when I wake up, I'm ready for that next day. And it's important for me. So I live by 24 hours. I'm not worried about tomorrow. Uh, I'm not concerned about what happened yesterday. What can I do better today? And, you know, I try to wake up and do the next right thing every day. And I try to be a walking example of God and, 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 and be the light for the ones that are around me in the community, you, because you, that's what they're attracted to. You said something that really caught my ear when you talked about the people who were in prison, that they were broken and, and hurting and, and lost. Um, do you still see that? in your work today with the folks? 100%. 100%. It's the same type of clientele. They're all broken and hurt, you know, and they want to be loved and they need to be loved. And that's why I make it a point to seek to understand and let it be an ear for them to talk to because nobody's ever taken the time to talk to them. That ministry that God gave you in prison, he's just extended it out, hadn't he? One hundred percent. And I'm able to touch so many people now that I have my freedom and that I'm not behind closed walls. I'm able to extend that to the people that are in my community that come and go on a daily basis. Well, Kevin, I sure appreciate you taking the time to talk to us uh, tonight and give us that testimony. I mean, you've always been willing to speak up whenever you were asked, and, and I so appreciate that. And and I know there's going to be a lot of folks at Shady Grove. You know, there's a lot of folks that love you and care about you and have been praying for you. And um, so I know a lot of them are going to hear this, and they're going to they're going to pray again for you. So if you want just say hello to everybody at Shady yeah, Grove. Yeah, I do. And I, I number one, I, I love everybody at Shady Grove. And I, and, and I do say hello to everybody. And, and I often pray for that church as well. But I will say one thing about Shady Grove that stuck with me and made me who I am today. You are a loving church and continue to do what you're doing because I never forget walking in them doors broken and beat up and the pain I was in and everybody encouraged and lifted me up and hugged me and loved me. That's what helped me get to where I am today because that church is a loving church. And God, God knows even when I left the church, because I went back out there, when I came back, everybody embraced me with open arms. And that, to me, I will never forget. 
Shady Grove's a part of my story. That's where I was baptized. That's where I got saved. And and blessings and, and, and praises to all of y'all because I, I am so grateful for what Shady Grove has done to me, done for me and continues to do for me. And, for and uh, I can't for, thank y'all enough. All for God's glory, man. All for Amen God's to glory. that. Amen to that. Well, let me ask so. you let me ask you a final question here. Who do you like on February eleventh in the Super Bowl? Well, I'm going to tell you this, okay? I'm sick of Buffalo losing to Kansas City, (laughs) all right? And Patrick Mahomes is becoming the new Tom Brady. With that being said, I got to pull for San Francisco because (laughs) I lost to New England for years upon years, and I swear I don't want to lose to Kansas City year upon year. So hopefully they get a little reality check this Sunday and go San Francisco. Oh, man. I'm not rooting for Mahomes. Now, I got to give him credit. He's, He's an astonishing ball player, and he's good at what he does but yeah i'm gonna have to pick the 49ers on this thank you for joining us today on shady grove radio i'm dan loggins and if you have any questions about anything you heard on shady grove radio today send me an email dan at shadygroveradio.com dan at shadygroveradio.com